Well, good morning, everyone. This is Garland Young, co-teacher of the Journey class with lesson three from the book of Job. And today we're considering the issue of life versus death and the question of what we might call meaningless suffering. Let's begin. Our passages from today are drawn from Job chapters two and three, various passages. We'll be reading those together, as well as studying the meaning behind those passages and their implications for Christian faith today. <clears throat> Let's begin with the topic of perseverance. We all believe that perseverance is a valuable virtue and we recognize its importance in all of life, in every area of life. And, <clears throat> and if you look at some famous figures in history, uh, their activities and their accomplishments bear out the value of perseverance. Uh, so, for example, <clears throat> let's take a look at Albert Einstein. Although Einstein is now known as one of the great geniuses of modern times, the young Albert Einstein was not viewed as much of a, of a prospective scholar. His parents and teachers recognized his social awkwardness uh, due to the fact that he didn't begin to speak until around age four and he wasn't able to read until age seven, they, they began to think that he was mentally <clears throat> handicapped in some way. <clears throat> he was eventually expelled from school and he was denied entry into the Zurich Polytechnic School. And yet it goes without saying that he turned out to be one of the great geniuses of our time. <clears throat> Likewise, Thomas Edison was considered unteachable as a youth. But the great inventor changed the world with his invention of the electric light bulb. Before his successful invention of the light bulb, as is widely known, he failed almost a thousand times in his various experiments. <clears throat> and commenting on his failures, he realized that these failures simply meant that he had discovered 1,000 ways one could not invent a light bulb. <clears throat> Even the famous Elvis Presley learned the value of perseverance before he was a household name. Presley was fired by uh, Jimmy Denny, who was then the manager of Nashville's Grand Ole Opry. After one show, Denny told Presley, you ain't going nowhere, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. Well, we all know how that advice turned out. And finally, Steven Spielberg, after high school, Spielberg was rejected three times for admission to the University of Southern California's School of Theater, Film, and Television. After dropping out of, after, after attending Cal State Long Beach, he subsequently dropped out and pursued directing without a degree. And I think he turned out okay. But despite these stories of success, the question remains, even though perseverance pays off in these famous examples, does it always pay off? Are there times or circumstances when we ought to just <clears throat> give up the fight? Uh, what do we do with the value of perseverance in cases where there is no hope of success remaining? And that's really where today's lesson <clears throat> takes us. Today's passages are drawn from uh, various parts of chapters two and three of the book of Job. We'll be reading, first of all, from Job chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We'll continue with reading uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, and then we'll be skipping down to verses 20 through 26 of the third chapter uh, to consider the meaning of those passages as well. Let's begin with Job chapter 2 and then examine 
what this tells us about the book of Job. <clears throat> Job 2, verses 1 through 10. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All the people have, they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. <clears throat> the Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, we're all amazed at Job's perseverance. But the questions remain, why did Job persevere as long as he did? And why did he finally begin to speak out in objection to his plight? <clears throat> I recall the first time I read the book of Job many years ago, I got to this particular point in the book and I thought that Job was going to be our hero and that the rest of the book was going to be about how Job persisted in his silent, faithful suffering, no matter what kinds of maladies Satan threw at Job. In reality, as we'll see in chapter three, Job opens his mouth and he begins to complain about his plight. So this complicates the, the, the direction of the story a little bit. We're going to be talking about that more in just a moment. So back, in chap back to chapter two, verses one through 10, we have yet once more a, a second scene in the heavenly court of the Lord. <clears throat> the heavenly court gathers together in their heavenly uh, retinue with God at the center, and among them stands <clears throat> Satan. And the intriguing point here, as probably has already been made in your Sunday school class, is the term Satan here has uh, the definite article in front of it, and the term Satan means accuser, and uh, for that reason, the term Satan in this passage could almost be translated the accuser, not so much as a proper name, but rather <clears throat> as a job. <clears throat> it's almost as if Satan is presented here as uh, not as some fallen angel who's burning in the fires of hell along with his evil minions, the demons, but rather a member of the heavenly court and someone whose job it is to accuse righteous people like Job. It's almost as if Satan is God's district attorney who is hired by God to point out the faults of all of God's servants. <clears throat> and as we found in chapter one in the first scene from the heavenly court, 
God begins to brag about Job. Look at this guy, Job. Look how great he is. Look at what great integrity he has. And God is, God, as God brags on Job's integrity, we recognize the meaning of this term, uh, tuma or integrity. <clears throat> very important biblical word, very important word in Christian ethics. Uh, the term integrity comes from the verb to integrate and the noun integration. <clears throat> To be an integrated being means to be at peace both within and without oneself. So there is no conflict between one portion of one's being and another portion of one's being. Uh, another way of understanding integrity is that <clears throat> the words that I speak are consistent with the thoughts that I think and the actions that I take are consistent with the words that I speak. So that there's no distinction between my thoughts, my words, my actions. That's a very high moral standard to reach. But apparently Job had reached it, at least in the eyes of God. <clears throat> so he brags to Satan a second time about Job's moral integrity. Satan is unimpressed. Skin for skin, says Satan. Uh, a very obscure metaphor. We're not really sure what it means. Uh, the author might give us a hint. <clears throat> When he continues to quote Satan saying, all that a man has, he will give for his life. <clears throat> the idea being that uh, <clears throat> one's possessions, the protection of one's possessions are one thing, but the protection of one's skin is another thing altogether. And although people uh, might barter and bargain for the various physical items in their life, there's nothing they value more than their own life. And there's no physical thing that someone would fail to give away in order to buy back his own life. <clears throat> it continues to amaze me that God allowed Satan to do this to Job. Uh, <clears throat> from, a, from a human standpoint, it appears like kind of a, kind of a cruel joke, kind of a, 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 <clears throat> a cruel gamble or a cruel bet between God and Satan. We misunderstand the book of Job, however, <clears throat> if we get caught up in why God allowed Satan to do this, or whether Satan always has the power to do this, or whether there's a difference between God, <clears throat> God <clears throat> visiting upon Job pain and suffering, or God allowing Satan to visit upon Job pain and suffering. Did God cause it or did God did, did God allow it? Those are all interesting theological questions. But as interesting as they are, <clears throat> I challenge us to bracket those questions for right now. Because I think the point of this passage lay elsewhere. And so I want us to go on and consider what the other points might be in order to help us move along these important questions, though. I think it's time for us to delve a little more deeply into the concept of Satan understand how and why Satan might be presented here in a way that's very, very different from the way we understand Satan as portrayed in the New Testament. <clears throat> the concept of Satan was not a constant in ancient Hebrew theology. Instead, it was <clears throat> a developmental matter. There was a time early in Hebrew theology when there wasn't much of a concept of Satan. The earliest Hebrew theology emphasized God's total sovereignty. There was, as far as supernatural powers in the world, there was simply God. And whatever good came upon a person, that was 
by the hand of God. And whatever pain and suffering a person experienced, that also came by God's hand. <clears throat> At a middle point in Hebrew theology, however, that idea began to appear unattractive to the Hebrews. They began to wonder why God <clears throat> would, would cause bad things to happen to a person. And they began to wonder whether there is some sort of being who might have, other than God, who might have a role in these calamitous events in our lives. And uh, this is the way that, that uh, the evil one shows up in the book of Job, an accuser whose primary role is to point out the flaws of other persons. And it's in this vein that Satan shows up in the book of Job. Uh, rather than a, an evil angel or a fallen angel, uh, Satan shows up simply as a member of God's heavenly court, whose job it is to point out our faults. And that's not really a very hard job to do if you stop and think about it. But by the time we get to the late Old Testament period and certainly the New Testament period, the period of Jesus and Paul, the concept of Satan has grown significantly uh, so that Satan is viewed as a personal being who tempts persons to do wrong and who causes human pain and suffering. So the world is viewed as a fallen place that is at least partially under the dominion of this evil being and his minions, the, de the demons. And that's certainly the way that Satan is portrayed in the Gospels and for the most part in the rest of the New Testament. But as I was saying, the book of Job is kind of an intermediary step in this development of the theology of Satan so that Satan shows up <clears throat> as uh, a member of God's heavenly court whose job it is to uh, accuse us of wrong. Now, given this developmental understanding of the concept of Satan in the Hebrew scriptures and in, in the Christian scriptures, we should understand that the purpose of the book of Job is not to explain what causes human suffering. And it's, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in that because it appears that the cause of Job's suffering, the two reasons why, why this is such a tempting question to ask. Number one, it certainly appears in the text, the cause of human suffering is, 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 is Satan uh, in, imposing these these, these uh, terrible events and uh, calamities upon the life of Job. And the second reason why this is such a strong temptation for us is because we also suffer like Job. And we are also wondering what's the cause of our suffering. Now, we don't always wonder that. Sometimes we do understand the cause of our suffering. <clears throat> when I missed a step on the attic stairway, I fell and hit my head and, and that, that was suffering, but I didn't know exactly what caused it. It wasn't, it wasn't Satan, it was, it was me. Uh, but many times we're not sure what, what is the cause of our human suffering. So we naturally want to ask this question. But as important as that question is, as pressing as it has always been for people, that's not the main purpose of this passage. It's not even the main purpose of the book of Job. The passage's purpose, today's passage has its, its purpose to illustrate an appropriate human response to unexplained suffering. In general, this is the model, this is what, this is the behavior that the book of Job is modeling for us. And we'll learn some interesting things when we observe how Job responds to suffering that he cannot explain. Keep in mind that Job has no idea that God and Satan are having this conversation. All he knows is he is hurting. <clears throat> he doesn't understand the cause of his suffering. 
neither do his three friends who show up in chapter three, and neither does his wife, who feels like that Job is being way too patient here. He should just go ahead and curse God and die and just, and just give up. And Job rebukes his wife for speaking foolish words, and he makes an interesting point, uh, shall we expect good things from God and not evil things? So Job is really is here really questioning the old Hebrew theology of God's total sovereignty, the idea that God is responsible for the visitation of both evil and good upon human life. And that's an important consideration uh, in the theology of that particular time. <clears throat> Let's turn now to chapter three, three verses one through 11. <clears throat> After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God, not see, may God above not seek it, or light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let fit darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the numbers of the months. Yes, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those who curse it, who curse the sea, those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. What a difficult and depressing passage. Job, in the absolute pits of despair, cries out to God, wishing he had never been born. <clears throat> Job curses <clears throat> the day of his death, <clears throat> but it's the day of his birth. But it's interesting to note that Job doesn't curse God. He curses the day of his birth. So Job has some very hard things to say to God, but he's not directly blaming God. Instead, he is in despair, wondering why he's been brought to this situation at all. He's wondering why he had to be born at all if this is going to be his lot in life. Why did I not die at birth? Job laments. And this reminds us of Jeremiah chapter 20, where Jeremiah, in, the fit, in a similar fit of despair over not being able to have anyone be converted by the preaching of the word of God that had been delivered to him curses the day that he was born and laments that he was ever brought into the world to endure such humiliation and suffering. <clears throat> well, if you've ever been this far down, perhaps you can explain to your classmates what causes persons to wish such an awful thing as never having been born. What causes a person to cross over that threshold into wishing that, into thinking that death can be better than life? And another question we sh you should probably ask in Sunday school would be, is asking such questions spiritually appropriate? Why or why not? Now, I personally tend to think that God is big enough to hear all of our questions, even the despairing, even despairing questions such as this one. <clears throat> God understands that we are mortal that we have limits beyond which we cannot go. And sometimes life takes us up to and even beyond those limits. And 
God understands that sometimes in the depths of despair, we do not understand what lay on the other side. We do not understand what kind of redemption or reconciliation lay ahead for us. We, all we can really see in front of us is more pain and suffering. And so we despair of there being any meaning. God understands these things. And so there are times when we reach such points of suffering that we feel the need to cry out in this way, cry out in this way also. And God understands. God is not angered <clears throat> when we reach this point. God is not going to punish us if we simply pour out our hearts to God in re recognition of how far we have fallen from a sense of faith and enlightenment. <clears throat> Let's skip now to verses 20 through 26, <clears throat> where Job continues this theme of the potential meaninglessness of his suffering. <clears throat> and he speculates, why is light given to one in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death when it does not come and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly, the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, or am I quiet? I have no rest, but trouble comes. <clears throat> have you ever been so sick that you long for death? Well, I certainly hope not, but perhaps so. Have you ever seen a loved one or a friend who is so sick that he or she longed for death? Perhaps so. Perhaps you longed for it right along with them, and you suffered right along with them. These are the difficult and most trying times of life. When we reach the end of life and the ultimate questions come to the fore, has all that I have said, done, and been worth the effort? Is there anything remaining for, as far as meaning for my life that will reside on the earth after I'm gone? These are hard questions. And as we ask these hard questions, <clears throat> We are led to wonder, what is the point of it all? Um, <clears throat> Job is wondering, uh, why are such persons forced to endure continued suffering? Perhaps you've sat at the bedside of a, a suffering loved one, and you recognize that the end is at hand, and you're wondering, why should they be forced to go on if there's nothing else for them to look forward to but more pain and suffering? <clears throat> So there are some thoughts and questions for discussion that I think that you might want to discuss with your loved ones as we review the as you review the lesson together. Number one, are there some good outcomes for suffering? Well, I think certainly that there are. Suffering can make us stronger. Sometimes it's not simply a cynical proverb that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Sometimes it's the it's the truth. Sometimes suffering does make us stronger. Sometimes suffering makes us more appreciative of the good things that we have. Sometimes suffering teaches us life, teaches us life lessons about perseverance and faith and compassion and selflessness and self-control. But there are other times in life when we're not so sure. So a second question I would ask you to consider is, 
admittedly, some suffering certainly can have meaning. It can have positive impact on, on our life. But are, is there, are there some forms of suffering that don't have a meaning? Does all suffering have a meaning? Or is there, uh, is there a type of suffering that is meaningless? Let's consider further. If we think about suffering, we can probably categorize it into four groups. First of all, there's suffering that's not final, that is, that isn't going to kill us, and that has a point. A uh, classic example could be uh, the suffering of uh, labor pangs. Never having experienced that myself, uh, I speak as simply as an observer, but uh, when a pregnancy has a successful conclusion, the mother typically agrees that the suffering has been worth the benefit of the successful delivery of a child. Other suffering, however, <clears throat> is not terminal and it doesn't seem to have a point. Uh, if a person is captured by uh, a madman and is, is, is tortured, that suffering has no rational point, uh, even if it doesn't kill the person. And it's reasonable for us to wonder why God would allow that person to suffer in that way, particularly if that person is innocent. Third, some suffering that is terminal has a point. <clears throat> Heroes in war have sometimes sacrificed their own lives willfully in order to achieve a military goal or to save the lives of their buddies on the field of battle. That certainly is a kind of suffering that is terminal, but it definitely has a point. It definitely has a good end that, it, that, that transcends the life of that single individual willfully giving up his life for the welfare of others. And we're gonna come back to that in just a moment. <clears throat> Finally, the most difficult kind of suffering, suffering that ends in death and that doesn't appear to have point. As I was saying a moment ago, someone who is terminally ill and it was in the final death throes of their illness and is in great pain and agony. And we know that the only thing that's going to end this agony is death itself. What is the point of that? And what would Christians have to say about the point of that? Well, let's see what we can do as we view Job chapters two and three through the lens of Christian faith. <clears throat> I think it's really important at this particular point. Introduce the concept of afterlife here. Now in later chapters in the book of Job, we're going to examine some passages that will lead us to have questions about what Job thought about the afterlife. In, some pa in short, in some passages, Job appears to speak as if he didn't believe in an afterlife. In other passages, he appears to speak as if he did believe in an afterlife. And scholars continue to wrestle <clears throat> with this interpretational issue. Did Job believe in an afterlife? If so, what kind of afterlife did he believe in? And did his understanding of afterlife, whatever it might have been, affect the way he responded to his suffering? But I do think it's pertinent for us to, for us to recognize that a person's afterlife beliefs do affect his or her understanding of suffering in general and pointless suffering uh, specifically. Because if there is an afterlife, if there is a promise of an afterlife reward, that affects our meaning of the concept of pointless suffering. As a matter of fact, it might actually undercut 
the existence of pointless suffering, because even pointless suffering can have a good end that would more than compensate for the suffering, the temporal suffering that someone experiences on this earth as compared to the eternal joys that one would experience in heaven, for example. <clears throat> well, this leads us to a point about Job. Did Job's suffering have a payoff at the end? Have you already read through the book of Job? Well, if you have, you know that the book of Job has a relatively happy ending. At the end of the book of Job, God restores to Job all that he had lost, his health, his wealth, his standing in the community. And Job appears to be as well off, if not better off at the end of the book of Job than he was at the beginning. So perhaps we can conclude from the book of Job that suffering can be endured because we know there's a payoff at the end. <clears throat> and the payoff is worth the suffering that one has to endure to get there. But suppose the book of Job had ended without Job getting all of his stuff back. Suppose the book of Job had ended without there being a payoff. How would this affect uh, our view of God in the book? If God had caused Job to suffer, or if God had allowed J Satan to cause Job to suffer, <clears throat> and God had not restored Job in the book, would this affect the way we understand God? Would this have undermined uh, the goodness of God in our own their own minds, or what we have simply said, as Job did early on in the book, <clears throat> the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Perhaps that was, that's what the, we would say also. And then for us, does perseverance always pay off? Well, it did for Einstein and Edison and Presley and Spielberg. But that isn't always for us. Or is there sometimes no point in persevering. <clears throat> now, there's some, is there some point in life when not persevering <clears throat> is actually the lesser evil than persevering? <clears throat> I think certainly the work of Christ on the cross should affect our understanding of suffering, particularly the concept of pointless suffering. Because when we read passages like Philippians 2, and 1 Peter 2, and 1 Peter 4, we see that Christ sets an example of suffering for us that we ought to follow. And indeed, it isn't simply suffering for suffering's sake. It isn't simply suffering for the sake of martyrdom or for the sake of one's, maintaining one's good reputation after death. It's suffering to benefit others. Christ suffered on behalf of us so that we wouldn't have to suffer. And Christ's suffering will result in our exaltation in the afterlife, an eternity of life with God in Christ. And those realities should shape our understanding, both of uh, suffering in general and suffering in the book of Job in particular, because without an afterlife, the question does become real, whether or not some suffering is indeed pointless. But with the idea of a possible reward in an afterlife, even the worst suffering can be weighed and should be weighed against the eternal glories that we'll all enjoy when we join Christ and our loved ones and the Father in heaven. These are important things to recognize about the book of Job and important ways we just need to contextualize the book of Job as Christian readers. And I would impose upon you the need to uh, view Job from the, through the lenses of our own 
Christian faith. <clears throat> I hope that in the coming days, if you witness or perhaps even experience severe suffering, that you'll understand that the promise of life with God in Christ in the act of life can help us endure much and can help us understand that our suffering can't have a positive end. Let's close with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Gracious God, we give you thanks for the book of Job. We give you thanks for the chance we have to live life modeled after your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered, bled, and died so that others might live. We pray that this model of servant leadership might guide all that we think, say, and do in the coming week and in the coming months and years. We pray that we would take the suffering that we have to experience and would see opportunities to make our suffering meaningful for the lives of others, even if not for ourselves. We give you thanks for the scripture for this time of study together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I certainly hope that uh, you found, you're finding the book of Job uh, probing, uh, thought-provoking, and, and sometimes a little difficult. It's not an easy book, but I encourage you to stay the course. Uh, until next time, this is Garland Young, co-teacher of the Journey class, wishing you all of God's blessings in the day and the coming week. <clears throat>